Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being found or made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, we think often of the incarnation at this time of year. We can celebrate the willingness of the eternal Son to leave the glory and splendor of heaven and to take on our humanity, so much so that as he laid aside the use of his divine attributes without ever giving them up, he learned obedience, he learned how to walk, how to speak, he studied the scriptures, and then he took this life and he went even to the cross for our sin. Father, there are no words to express our gratitude. We thank you that because you have raised him up, affirming that he is indeed the Messiah, that you have given him the name above every name, that someday, in the name of Jesus, those in heaven, those on earth, those below the earth, will confess that he is Lord to your glory. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that just as you promised, you would send the Spirit of God to come and help us and to mold us, and to make us, and to shape us. And Spirit of God, we thank you that you gave us the Word of God, that you moved men of old, that they might write for us Holy Scripture. And as we read it this morning, we need your help to understand it and to apply it and to make it more real than it already is. May your ministry to those who are lost as you came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, may that ministry be real today as you bring people to the Savior. Father, help me, fill me, anoint me, and use me in your grace. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Epistle of James, the Proverbs of the New Testament. Now, last week, we began a brand new series on James, which is very practical. It's known for its practicality, but it's also known for some of its most profound theological truths in the New Testament. And like any book, we typically take it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And if you listen carefully to what James has to say, I promise you, your life will never, ever be the same. He's not a man who's interested in stained glass theology. He's interested in grass-stained advice. He wants to take your creed and turn it into conduct. He wants to take our belief and change our behavior. He's a man who wants to take doctrine and translate it into everyday duty. So he's not simply presenting to us a theoretical faith. He is presenting a faith, a belief that behaves. Now, if you were here last week, I gave you kind of a challenge. And I asked you that as we work through the book of James, and I suspect we'll be here at least until Easter, that once a week... You read the book of James. I had lunch with a brother this week and told me he'd already read it four times. When I left my home early this morning, I left at 6.05 and made my route through Dunkin' Donuts to get my coffee. And by the time I made it to the office and to my desk, I was able to listen to it twice. So you can get your app and just listen to it being read as well. That's another opportunity for you. It's just 108 verses. It is short, but it is life-changing. Now, last time, we studied just the first verse, and we attempted to ask and answer three foundational questions. First, who is James? Secondly, who are the recipients of this letter? And third, why is he writing this book? In terms of authorship, it's a little bit of a challenge because there are four different James that are mentioned in the New Testament. And by process of elimination, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, Add to that external evidence that early and late church fathers, there's one unanimous voice that the James who wrote this is the half-brother of Christ, who's converted at the resurrection and at that point deemed to be an apostle. There's another apostle, James, 
Just like there's not only the original 12, Matthew who replaced Judas, but there's this James that, who is described as an apostle in Galatians. Paul is an apostle. I take it Barnabas is an apostle. So there are 15 actually apostles in the New Testament. But this is the James who grew up with the Lord Jesus in a family of seven children. And of course, the audience to whom he is writing are Jewish Christians. That's not an oxymoron any more than being an Irish Christian or an Italian Christian. These are Hebrew people described as the 12 tribes who are dispersed, dispersed, or you could render it scattered. They're scattered like seed. And the reason they are dispersed is because of persecution. Now, every once in a while, someone calls into the Bible line and they ask a question about the 10 lost tribes of Israel. There are no 10 lost tribes. That came out of British Israelism, a white Anglo-Saxon theology that denied that in an anti-Semitic way that the Jewish people were still the Jewish people in the way the Scripture describes the Jewish people, and that now these Brits were the chosen people. And so for centuries, they took out uh, the stone of scone, they called it, Jacob's pillow. Remember, Jacob put his head on a pillow on a rock, so to speak. I've been to that place. It's a very, very rocky place. And every time a queen or a king was coronated, they'd bring that rock out. And it wasn't until Queen Elizabeth, who is born again, she'd had enough of that foolishness, and she said, there is no such thing. Listen, the 12 tribes are not lost. They're certainly not lost to God. They're not lost to James because he's writing to the 12 tribes. And add to that, um, you know, the, a number of the 10 northern tribes that people say were lost are actually mentioned specifically in the New Testament, even at this time of year, like Anna from the tribe of Asher. But the reason he's writing this book is because these are Jewish people who confessed Jesus as Lord, and it invited persecution. And so before we read our text, let me just um, give you an overview. The chapter will be in this chapter for a number of weeks. The first 11 verses deal with trials on the outside, the kind of trials that we face as believers in Jesus Christ as we walk through this world. Then in verses 13 through 27, he deals with temptations on the inside, And the hinge verse in the whole chapter is verse 12. So with that broad overview, let's read our text. I hope you bring a Bible with you to church. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, where we left off. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position." And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him." I heard about a college student who took his final exam, and he got it back with a zero on it. And extremely disappointed, he went to the prof, and he said, Prof, I don't believe I deserve a zero. To which the prof said, well, I don't believe you deserve a zero either, but I couldn't find a lower grade to give you. (laughs) Now, you may be failing this morning in the test of life, but we can learn together how to pass the test of life. God wants us to pass with an A+. And to help us to get an A+, on God's exam, I believe there are three timeless principles that the Apostle James gives us that we need to understand. If you're new, there's a note-taking outline. If you're online, you can print it out there at the website. Someone will give you instructions if you have questions. 
First, I want you to notice that we are to have joy in our trials. We're to have joy in our trials, and he begins with the fact of trials, that fact, the fact of trials. Now, notice how verse 2 begins. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Again, not if, but when you encounter various trials. Now, there's a lot of strange theology in our day, beginning with those who think that all trials are simply punishment from God, and if you are under some trial, it must mean that you are under God's discipline. That's a false teaching, and it's really a misunderstanding of the nature of discipline. You're in James, if you will turn just a few pages over to the left to the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. The chapter opens by encouraging us to learn from a great cloud of witnesses who have just been mentioned in chapter 11, men and women who chose to believe God in the midst of difficult circumstances, men and women who learned to walk by faith in the promises of God. By the way, this verse, the opening verse, has absolutely nothing to do with those who have died and gone on who are watching us from heaven like spectators in a stand. Now, that makes for a very colorful preaching, but it ignores the context, and nothing could be further from the truth. And I suppose if that were true, it would make heaven a little bit more like hell. Anyway, rather, the great cloud of witnesses that he is mentioning come from chapter 11. And um, they are not witnessing us, but they are witnessing to us. Look back just in chapter 11 for a moment, chapter 11. Uh, Again, he's been walking through all these great men and women of the faith. And drop down to verse 37 of chapter 11. He gives kind of a summary comment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Now, it's of such people that chapter 12 is referring to here in the opening verse. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, those mentioned in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he gives us the supreme example of the faith walk. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, Jesus who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now, if you know the book of Hebrews, you know these are Jewish Christians who are discouraged because they were experiencing persecution, both socially and economically, rejected by their families, Their businesses were boycotted, yet he reminds them, though you have not been persecuted yet to the point of shedding blood. But even in the trials that they were facing, they were to consider Jesus, who could encourage the discouraged by his example. And then he adds a very important reminder that I want us to focus on in verses 5 and 6. He's quoting, as you can see from the book of Proverbs, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. One great reason for the discouragement that these Jewish Christians were experiencing is because they had forgotten that the discipline of God was actually an expression of his love. And if you forget that God's discipline is an expression of His love, then you too can become despondent. Listen, all discipline is not enacted for something that you've done that's wrong. If that were true, then the Lord Jesus would not be someone to watch because He experienced discipline. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 concerning Jesus, the writer says, although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus himself was not exempt from discipline. 
even though he was the son of God, even though he was absolutely perfect in everything he said in word and deed and in thought was absolutely holy. And yet the Bible says he gained perspective through suffering. He learned obedience. In what sense? He's the omniscient God. He laid aside without ever giving up. He laid aside the exercise of his divine attributes, and he lived in dependence upon God the Spirit. And so he learned obedience. And so at this time of year, we often read from Luke 2.52, he grew in favor with God and with man. So there are many reasons given for discipline. Sometimes, yes, indeed, it is corrective. But sometimes it's instructive. We would discipline our children sometimes in an instructive way. We wanted to teach them how to work. We wanted to teach them how to pray and study the Bible for themselves. But sometimes it was for bad behavior. Listen to another reason for trials from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed, we like to say blessed and using the old English, but it's actually blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So sometimes God allows a trial in our life so we can learn for some future time how to comfort someone else who's going through the identical trial that the comfort God expressed in our life, we in turn can express to someone else. Now back here to James chapter 1 in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And again, there's a lot of strange theology in our day saying that, well, first, all trials are simply punishment from God, and if you are under some kind of trial, you are under God's disfavor. It may mean just the opposite. And it's one of the reasons James is going to admonish us to ask for wisdom in the midst of our trial. And it might be that God is actually, as we just read from 2 Corinthians 1, He sees you as a mature enough Christian that He is going to let you go through a trial that someone else who might not be quite so mature might find comfort through your life and the, the ministry that God's Spirit brought you when you went through it. Sometimes God helps us with a trial to help another person. Paul expressed this very thought in 2 Corinthians 7, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul got depressed. Yes, he and his whole team got depressed. And God used an individual to come alongside and comfort them. Some have concluded that trials are a punishment or that they're only for the immature or some have concluded that they are from the devil. And so in prosperity theology, they speak much about health and wealth, and they falsely appeal to promises that were not made to the church, but made uniquely to Israel that they think somehow you can just claim. For instance, in Exodus 15 and verse 26, some of these guys on TV will often quote this verse. If you will give earnest heed, God said, to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in His sight, and give ear to His commandments, and keep His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. There it is, they said. It's a promise. You don't have to have any of the diseases that the Egyptians had. You just need faith to believe that. Now, that was a promise God made to Israel. Always consider the context. Or this verse in Deuteronomy 29 in verse 5. They use this to say that God wants to bless you financially. God said, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. Now, these two verses, again, two promises made to the people of Israel, and one was a miracle promise. They were both miracle promises, right down to your clothing, your sandals. For 40 years and they didn't wear out, that's what God did. And they say, well, if you have enough faith, then God will bless you with great prosperity. And so in some circles, they use verses like this for their health and wealth theology. And then you've got people like Mary Baker Eddy, long ago dead. Her mansion was right across the street from Boston College where I went to school. 
And of course, the thrust of her theology called Christian science, we don't have much of it here in the South, but you get up into the northeastern part of the United States and there's Christian science churches all over the place. Well, number one, it's neither Christian nor is it scientific. But in her mind, death and pain and sickness were all a figment of your imagination that you could outthink it. In fact, she said that if you did it well enough, you wouldn't die. In fact, when she did die, they propped her up there in her carriage and they put her up and down Beacon Street there in Boston, bringing her up like she was still alive and finally they had to bury her. But as she requested, if I do die, bury me with a telephone and they put one of the early telephones in her coffin. Listen, trials are not like the boogeyman, they are real and they cannot be outthought. And so God tells us here in verse two, we are to expect trials. And certainly the Christian who expects trials in life will not be in a shock for when they come. Listen to what the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter eight. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I hope you have that testimony in your heart today. God gives assurance as we studied in our basic discipleship course recently on a number of levels. One is the finished work of Christ. Another level is the indwelling presence of the Spirit where He bears witness to your spirit that you've been born from above. And then He says, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with him. Oh, that doesn't sell well today. Sometimes you suffer with Christ. Jesus promised in John chapter 16 and verse 13, in the world you will, you will, you will have tribulation. The apostle Paul told the church at Antioch and some other visiting churches, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Likewise, the apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He said, don't be surprised when you're persecuted like this is odd. Jesus said, if they mistreated me, they'll mistreat you because you're not above the master. Listen, the prosperity theology of our day absolutely is nauseating, it's offensive, and I know it's disgusting to God. It's just stinking, rotten, bad theology, and it's not even close to being right into what God says in His Word. But James didn't teach that. Trials are a part of life. They're a part of the maturation process. So he says, count it all joy, not when you escape various trials. Now, that might make more sense to some. But count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Remember to whom he is writing. We studied that single verse last week. He is writing to the diaspora, to the dispersed ones, to the scattered people. Well, these scattered people were not a sheltered people. Consider it all joy, again, not if, but when, when you encounter various trials. Now, you don't even have to go looking for them. Sooner or later, they're going to come to you. If you are a member of the human race, you will face trials. That's the fact of trials. Second, beyond the fact of trials, there is the form of trials. The form of trials. There's a note-taking outline for those online who've just tuned in. You can download it and take notes. The form of trials. Again, here in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Some translations say diverse trials. The American Standard Version of 1901, which was a predecessor to the new American Standard that you're reading, most of you, says manifold trials. Or the Net Bible uses three words to translate the one, all sorts of trials. It's the word poikolos, and it comes into Latin and then into English as polka dot. Polka dot trials. Trials are spotted, they're dotted, they're speckled, they're, they're, they're splattered, they're of all sizes and shapes. They come in many, many different forms and ways. They might be concerning your health, they might be concerning your job, different relationships, your, your standing in the community, your past, your hopes that maybe seem shattered, your children, whatever it may be. Trials come in many colors like the rainbow that God himself created. Many and varied polka dot kind of trials that come into this world. Now we get sick, things that we own break, accidents happen, 
disappointments come, and at time even tragedies in life. Life is full of trials. Life is not perfect. Add to that, as Christians, we face some trials that come from the evil one. Job was such a one, and before we're done with James, he himself will mention Job, because we wage war not against people, but against the powers, against the evil one. And so James tells us that we're going to encounter, or you're going to fall into, or the RSV says you're going to experience, or you're going to face various trials, again, depending on your English translation. Here's a beautiful place to visit when you go to Israel. We speak about the man who was on the Jericho Road. Remember, he went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He went down some 3,000 feet. Now, if you go to Israel today, you never really see this road unless you make a special stop there, and it's kind of out of the way, but it's a magnificent place to see. This was the road that that man traveled on when he fell among robbers. And in fact, the word fell among robbers is the same word that's used here in the NASB as encounter. He encountered, he fell among robbers. It's actually used only one other time in all the New Testament. In Acts chapter 27, when the apostle Paul is on a ship headed towards Rome, and then they unexpectedly encounter, same word, this storm that, of course, breaks the ship apart. We studied it recently. And so the Greek word expresses just some unexpected, sudden trial that comes upon you. And very often, that's the way trials come, just suddenly, without warning, like the man who encountered the robbers on the Jericho Road. In fact, the word here for trial is a rather interesting word in itself. In verbal form, it is actually a word in Greek that comes into Latin, that comes into English as pirate. We get our English word pirate from this Greek word. I mean, you're just sailing along, everything seems to be fine, and all of a sudden the shadow of a pirate ship comes up along your ship, and they try to break on board. Well, you may be sailing along life, and everything seems good, and then suddenly, unexpectedly, a trial comes. Now, I know what some of you are thinking here this morning. You're thinking, Pastor, everything is just fine. I have no problems in life. My blood pressure is down. My bank account is up. Everything is sweet. You just wait. It's coming. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Some of you are coming out of a trial. Some of you listening to me today, you're right in the midst of a trial. And some of, some of you, like the, like the man walking on the Jericho Road, suddenly, unexpectedly, a trial is going to come on your life. The next phone call could bring a tragedy. And so how are we going to respond? It may be a trial that comes just because we live in a fallen world. Look, some of the trials we bring, quote, unquote, on ourselves, and we'll see that as we continue through this short little epistle. A lot of the problems we have, they are just a, a kickback for bad choices that we have made due to disobedience. Or a trial could be a solicitation to evil. And we'll see next time how a trial can turn into a temptation if we do not respond properly to the trial. Winston Churchill, in addressing the House of Commons, gave this advice, quote, we must always be ready to meet at our average moment anything that any possible enemy could hurl against us at this selected moment. Now, that's a wise statement. I don't know if Winston Churchill ever came to a saving faith in Christ. But what he said, whether he knew it or not, was a biblically-based statement. Are you ready in the average moment of life for what the devil or what life may bring in some selected moment? Trials and temptations can be encountered quickly, unexpectedly, again like the man on the Jericho Road. And so Peter said, we're not to be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon us. And so James is saying, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, just make sure you don't misunderstand what James is saying. He's not saying that you're going to necessarily enjoy your trials, nor is he saying to feel it all joy. Don't go into some hospital room and say, hey, James said you're supposed to have a happy smile on your face. No, he said, consider it all joy. Hey, listen, there was never a time when Jesus was not filled with the Spirit. 
There was never a time when he didn't have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. He had gentleness when he went into that temple and he turned over the tables. He had joy when he was crying and weeping there in the Garden of Gethsemane, something that the writer of the Hebrews reveals to us. Consider it all joy, count it all joy. And this word consider, this word count, is actually a first century Greek financial term. To total it all up, to evaluate, and then come to a conclusion. By the way, the Apostle Paul uses the same word in Philippians 3. He said this, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted, same words, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So in the same way that Paul considered or counted all things gained to him to be garbage in view of the surpassing value of being saved and coming to know Jesus as Lord, even so, we need to evaluate our trials. We need to do some calculation. We need to do some divine math. Now, if you do your math the world's way, you'll come up with a different sum. But if you do your math God's way, then you can come up to an entirely different conclusion. And so, as you might expect, since God wants to grow us, trials are not elective courses. They're required courses. God wants to use them, but he wants us in the midst of suffering and hardship to calculate, to consider. Much like Paul did, he considered all things as dung, all these great things he had when he compared them to the value of being saved, born again, and knowing God in any personal way. He said, they don't even add up. Years ago, I did a series on the life of Joseph. We were studying the book of Genesis, and it was kind of a sobering study for me and I think for most of us. Because if Joseph counted things the way the world would, he would have ended up as a bitter, angry, complaining man. If you remember, he was sold into slavery. Uh, his youth, in essence, was lost. He was separated from his dad and mom. He grew up in a strange land. He was sold as a slave. And finally, uh, someone showed up who gave him a better job. But then his boss's wife accused him of attempted rape. He sent into prison as an innocent man. And if you remember there, he interprets the dreams of two men. They both come true. But he asks the cupbearer, he said, listen, when your dream comes through, remember me to Pharaoh. And years go by, and he totally forgets Joseph. From the world's point of view, if Joseph had calculated the trials he went through, he would have been a bitter and angry man. It appeared he didn't get any kind of a fair shake in life. But if you remember, after his brothers come to Egypt and they finally figure out who this prime minister is, Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He calculated the trials he had gone through in an entirely different way. James is trying to give us that perspective. Look at verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How can we possibly count it all joy? Because we know something. We know that trials can be used by God to produce endurance. Some translations say steadfastness, perseverance. The King James renders it as patience, hupomone. There's not a single English word that will catch the nuances in the Greek. It refers to someone who bears up under a heavy load. Have you ever prayed, God, make me more patient. Make me more like Jesus Christ. And the moment you begin to pray that, you say, well, Lord, what happened? He says, I'm just answering your prayer. That's all I'm doing. I'm, I'm just answering your prayer. So the word refers to the capacity to bear up under difficult circumstances, to persevere, to endure. It's not just I need more patience with my kids or I need to be calm in the midst of a jittery situation. Those things may be included. But rather, he's speaking here of consistency. I mean, have you ever said, well, I, I don't pray as I ought. I don't witness as I ought. You know, I'm on again, off again. I want to be consistent. You know, I have this roller coaster, up and down kind of Christian life. And what does God do? He brings trials to try to make us more consistent. And so James is telling us when your faith is stretched, when your faith is challenged through various trials, the end result potentially and I say potentially, is endurance. When I was a boy, I used to love to swim underwater. And you'd try to develop your lung capacity, and you'd see how many laps in the pool you could do underwater. And 
I was in Israel a few years ago, and this Russian brother was with me, and I said, I think I can outswim you. And he went all the way across and made it all the way in and came up gasping air, and I hit the end, and I was determined. I kicked off, and I went another five or six yards. You see, you have to develop that lung capacity. You've got to develop that endurance. James is saying that's what trials do. They develop endurance. It's what God uses to build character. So God tells us first something about the fact of trials. Then he tells us something about the form of trials. They are multifaceted. They are polka dot. They are multicolored. But then he tells us about the fruit of trials, the fruit of trials. Verse 4 indicates the fruit of our trials is maturity. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is a choice we make. We have to decide whether or not we will let endurance have its perfect result. In other words, we're not to short circuit what God wants to do by trying to escape the trial or by not responding in a proper way. And when we don't, usually it comes all over again. So we are to let endurance to be developed. By the way, that's an imperative. That's a command in our English text and the verb that he uses in the Greek New Testament. This is a command. Let, let, let. It's an obedience issue. Let endurance have its perfect result. Now, this word perfect is the word teleos. Depending on the context, it typically does not mean sinlessness, but rather it typically means maturity in the New Testament. In fact, there are two words that are used in Koine Greek to describe the fruit-bearing process that are used in the New Testament. One word refers to a piece of fruit that has all the component parts. So you can have a peach that has all the component parts, but it's green and it's rock hard. It's complete in that it has all the parts, but it's not ripe. That's not the word that he uses. He uses a word that would describe a peach that is just fully ripe and you bite into it and the juice just kind of pours down your face. That's the picture here. Someone who through the maturation process has become sweet and juicy in their Christian expression. So you can meet Christians who know a lot. You know, they can tell you who the Antichrist is by name in Revelation 13. They can tell you what nation the ten toes and Daniel's beasts represent, but they're not Christ-like. They know a doctrine so well they can split it ten different ways. They've got the component parts, but they haven't matured. So verse 4 says, and let, grammatically, again, it's an imperative. It's something we are to do. While we cannot choose what trials come our way, we must choose how we respond to those trials. Do you know how I can tell whether or not I am letting a trial have its perfect result? It's whether or not I am counting it joy. You see, we can run away from our trials. We can try to bail out of our trials. Oh, we want a new job because we don't like the boss and everything will be fixed. All I need is a new boss. We run away from these things. And God wants us to persevere. We want the end result. We want the product. We don't typically want the process that will bring about that product. Now, there's a second point. We are not only to have joy in our trials. James wants us to know that we are to ask for wisdom through our trials. We are to ask for wisdom through our trials. Why do we sometimes fail the tests that God brings into our life? Well, James gives us two reasons here in verses 5 through 8. First, we fail in our trials because of a lack of wisdom. Now, remember, in the Jewish biblical mindset, wisdom is not just what you know, but it's the ability to live your life well. And so this same word for wisdom is used throughout the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs. It's not simply knowledge, it's knowledge applied. So you can know all the facts and still not make a wise decision. And so we're instructed here in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, there's really a day that goes by where I don't need to ask God for some kind of wisdom. It might be a decision of life. 
It might be some decision with someone that I'm trying to counsel or help. It might be some decision that affects the body life of this church. And so I'm seeking God to give me wisdom. And he faithfully promises to give. See, James is a realist here. He knows that in order for us to accept his premise to adopt the attitude of joy in the midst of a trial, that we need to stay under the trial, that we need to allow the testing to produce maturity in our life. But he knows that there's at least one major problem And that is, is that we don't understand why this trial is coming upon us. And then we don't ask for wisdom to go through this trial. We're going to need wisdom in order to understand the hammer of God as it bangs on our life, that it's coming from the hand of God, that nothing comes apart from his providence. Look, the hairs on your head are numbered. A sparrow can't fall to the ground without God attending its funeral. So we are going to need wisdom to believe in God's providence and whatever we are facing. And so that leads us to the next point. We fail in our trials because of a lack of prayer. We fail in our trials because of a lack of prayer. You see, often others talk about the problem that they are going to. They talk to their spouse about it. They talk to their friends about it. They talk to their pastor about it. They talk it over in their own mind but they don't speak to God about it. And he wants us to ask him. We studied James a little bit in our series on prayer that I did on Wednesday night in the basic discipleship course, and we talked about a number of reasons, six reasons why God doesn't answer prayer. And one of the most commonly reasons that God does not answer prayer is it's not asked. Unasked prayer results in unanswered prayer. And God wants us to ask him for wisdom in the midst of a trial. We sometimes ask for wisdom about our future or about a move or a job. God wants us to ask in the midst of a trial. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without a a reproach and it will be given to him. If you need wisdom to evaluate your problems in life with joyful endurance, ask God. And please circle the word all in the, in the verse, because it's a reminder that our Heavenly Father does not pr- play favorites. He doesn't say, well, you're one of my top students. I'm going to give you wisdom. Oh, that other brother, I'm not so sure. No, God gives to all, to all generously and without reproach. The word generous literally means to spread out, to stretch out. It's a picture of God with outstretched arms wanting us to come to him. That's the attitude. That's the spirit that God has. Sometimes I ask someone to do something that I need some help with, and they say, well, pastor, if you, if you can't find anybody else, come back to me. But God is not like that. He doesn't say, you know, You were just here five minutes ago. What are you doing back here? God's not bothered. With outstretched arms, liberally, without reproach, he is willing and wanting to give you wisdom. He's got open hands, not a clenched fist. He's wanting and willing to respond. Now, notice what James does not say. He does not say, if any man lacks knowledge, let him ask of God. No, he uses this word, wisdom. Mankind increasingly has more and more knowledge. We know how to travel faster than the speed of light, but we're going in the wrong direction. And our depravity is showing itself more and more with every decade that goes by. Now, there's a third reason we fail the tests of life. Sometimes we fail because of a lack of wisdom, sometimes because of a lack of prayer, but sometimes we fail in our trials because of a lack of faith, a lack of faith. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. But we must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Our request for wisdom must be asked like any other request that we make of God in faith. In faith without any doubting of God's ability or his desire to give us that wisdom. So it's essential not only that you come in faith. Notice again, let me read it again. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea. Some of your translations say like a wave of the sea. What a beautiful description. 
Someone who comes in unbelief or they don't think it's really necessary for them to ask, that they can figure it out on their own, then they're like a boat on the sea that's turbulent, just up and down and all over the place. And James wants us to know, look, if you're in this state of agitation, it's either A, because you did not ask, or B, you did not come in faith, which is why he now says in verse 7, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. That is, the one who doubts, who lacks faith, should not expect God will give him anything. Let's read verses 7 and 8 together. Look at your text. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God is clear that wisdom is never given to the double-minded man. It's the ninth inning, the seventh game of the World Series. The bases are loaded. The game is tied. There are two outs, a full count. The man gets up to hit the ball. It's the most determinative pitch of the whole game. He bunts up the third baseline, and the man runs for home. They're not sure whether he hit home base or not, and the umpire, everyone's waiting for his decision. Hmm, this is a tough one. I'm not really sure whether he's out or not. Listen, that's what James would call a double-minded man. When you ask God for wisdom... You are to come knowing and believing that he is there with open arms wanting to respond to you. And if that's your attitude, God will give you wisdom. If it's not your attitude, then you claim verse 7 as a promise. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. You'll be like a boat tossed out on a turbulent sea. Doesn't matter how many words you bring to God in prayer. There has to be a single-mindedness that you come to God with, not a double-mindedness, and that's where the problem is. People come. They come asking for wisdom, but they've already got their mind made up. Or they come asking for wisdom, and part of them wants the will of God, but there's a part of them over here that they don't want to give up this sin, that they know is sin, they know it's evil, and they don't want to turn away from it. And you say, oh, God, give me direction. God says, I won't. They're hoping sometimes that God is just going to rubber stamp the decision that they've already made in their own mind. A double-minded man, literally the Greek text says a two-souled man, a man with two souls in modern vernacular, a man with two hearts or two directions. He's referring to someone who's constantly up and down, changing allegiances, and hasn't determined in his mind whether or not he's going to walk in the center of God's will. No, God says, you come with a single-minded devotion because he's worthy of single-minded devotion. Lord, I am willing. Here I am. My heart is clear vertically with you. My heart is clear horizontally with my brother. Here I am, Lord, whatever you want, show me the purpose of this trial, and you will know the wisdom that God promises to give. Now, third, if we face our trials victoriously, we are to have joy in our trials. We're to ask for wisdom through our trials. But finally, in verses 9 through 12, James teaches us we are to gain perspective from our trials. We're to gain perspective from our trials. Let's read verses 9 through 11, and then we'll go back and dig out the finer points. But the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position, and the rich man is the glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. And its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now, what exactly is James speaking about here concerning these different kinds of Christians that are typically found in any local assembly? Now, do not forget the context of verses 9 through 11 are trials. And if you were not here last week, as to the background and the occasion for which this book was written, you need to download the Search the Scriptures app if you have a smartphone or go on your computer and listen into the opening message. It was an hour and 22 minutes long in this service. So I preached a long time, and I appreciated that you listened and stayed. Now, remember, this is a general epistle. 
is addressing not only the well-to-do, but the not-so-well-to-do, the poor believers in the church. And so verse 9, he speaks of the brother of humble circumstances, the brother who is economically deprived. And then in verses 10 and 11, he addresses the rich man who is entrusted with much. And both groups of people are going to experience trials, which is the great equalizer. Now, follow along his reasoning. First, the poor believer can rejoice in God's exaltation. The poor believer can rejoice in God's exaltation. He writes here in verse 9, but the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position. James is saying here, the poor believer can rejoice in his trials. Why? Because God is taking note of his humble circumstances. Or the American Standard Version of 1901, I like it, of his low degree. In other words, a poor brother of low degree or of humble circumstances, of low estate. And by the way, this is the exact same word that is used to describe Mary that she uses to describe herself, and rightly so, in that magnificent prayer sometimes we study at this time of year. The Magnificant from the Latin translation of the Bible. The song of praise, we often title her prayer. And she said in Luke 1, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he's had regard for the humble estate or the low degree or the low estate. It's the same Greek word. He has had regard for the humble estate of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. It's the same word that James uses to describe the poor man here in James 1 in verse 9. And it's used to marry the mother of the Lord. Why? Because she was a peasant woman. She wasn't wealthy. We know that from the kind of offering that her and Joseph gave there at the dedication of the Lord Jesus. Mary rejoiced. She had a sense of exaltation in her heart such that she can say, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. You see, we tend to sometimes view the rich people of this world as big shots. And sometimes rich people will view themselves as big shots. But God is watching, God is looking carefully at the poor brother, and God wants to equally mature him through a trial as he does the rich brother through a trial. And so James, under the inspiration of the Spirit, can say, but the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position. Because God is not a respecter of persons, the brother who is poor, lowly, of humble circumstances can glory. He can be glad, so to speak, because the Lord can provide for him true riches, true rank in the kingdom of God through the trials and the maturation that it brings. Before I came here, I was doing different things, but one of the jobs I had is I was the director of executive ministries for Dallas for uh, Campus Crusade Ministries at the time. And, you know, we had ministries and crew that were trying to reach the down-and-outers, and this was a ministry to reach the up-and-outers, CEOs of major corporations and so on. I had the... I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I'm, I'm not. God just cares about these rich executives. One of the guys we met in a home, the guy who was the CEO of 7-Eleven, and this guy came to the Bible study, and I followed him up, and... I was able to introduce him to Christ, and he was the owner of the largest Mercedes dealership in the United States until the recession in the 1980s hit Dallas. It was a recession in and of itself. I mean, real estate in Dallas was indexed to oil, and the oil market just fell apart, and so did the whole state of Texas in many ways. And we were trying to come here and be your pastor, and we lived in a house, and there were three empty houses this way, and two across the street, and five over there, and people were just tossing their keys and literally walking away. And you're trying to sell your house? Not an easy thing, but God provides. God works. So here we were. We're sitting in this country club just before his membership expired. And he said to me, Carl, I'm really glad what's happened to me. I've lost everything. But I'm really glad what happened, has happened to me because he said, I don't believe I would ever have found Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and the forgiveness that he has, happened, he has given me. And my, joy, my heart is just so filled with joy, I'm a different person. See, that's what God speaks of here. That, listen, in spite of the millions of dollars that he lost, 
the brother of humble circumstances, can also rejoice knowing that trials can be used to build him and to shape him, or in some cases, to bring him into the kingdom. And like Mary, the mother of the Lord, he had absolutely no regrets. So the poor believer can rejoice in God's exaltation. The rich believer can rejoice in God's humiliation. Look further now. Let's look at verse 10. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. And he continues the illustration here in verse 11. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and the flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. In other words, the rich man is to glory. He is to be glad in his humiliation because when he goes through a trial, they can remind him that in spite of all the comfort that he is enjoying, it's temporary. It's fading. It's like the grass that sprouts and then is brown. It's like the flower that is magnificent and then it fades away. You go to Israel in the spring and sometimes it's just breathtaking. What is typically brown across the state is green. And you see all these magnificent flowers, sometimes even out in the desert. And then come May, the heat comes up and it all turns brown. And, and James is writing uh, from this perspective. That's what the rich man and his riches are like. They will, in the end, all fade away. It's what Jesus warned in Luke 12. He said, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. But is that not how we tend to measure life? Oh, he's successful. Look at what he owns. Ah, man, he's a loser. He doesn't have much. And Jesus goes on to tell a parable, and he just reminds us that the way God measures life and the way the world measures it is very, very different. So if the rich man, and if he's a brother in Christ, then the Scripture says he is the glory in his humiliation because possessions are temporal. They're like the flower that fades, like the grass that turns brown. And so how much better to put our life, to put our identity into treasure that will never fade away. And he's going to explain that as we continue to work through the book. But the point that James is trying to make here is that trials have a way of humbling the rich man who may have much of this world's possessions but equally needs the character of Christ. But it is also a blessing to the poor man because that poor man is a prince of God as well. And when this life is over, he can have great treasure that is in heaven. And so trials humble the rich man. They bless the poor man because God uses them as the great equalizer in the body of Christ. So the poor man can rejoice in God's exaltation. The rich believer can rejoice in God's humiliation. All believers can rejoice in God's promise. All believers can rejoice in God's promise. Look now, if you will, at verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So James begins, blessed is the man. Sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, does it not, from Matthew 5. He is just saying here that there's a blessing, there's a, there's a satisfaction, there's a sense of deep joy that comes in the heart of the man who perseveres under a trial, who endures under the trial, who goes through the trial and comes out shining on the other end. Blesses the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved. And the word approved is a word that was used of metals that were put through a fiery furnace and all the alloys were skimmed off and, and it was a good metal then, it was a solid metal then. And he is just saying that trials can approve us, they can make us strong, they can make us genuine. And then he says, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. There's a lot of superficial Christians who are sitting in superficial churches that don't teach the Bible that results in superficial Christian lives. He's talking about, that's why they don't teach the book of James. He's talking about a man who's gone through the trial and he's approved, and what happens? He gets the crown of life. What a promise. Now, if you were with us in our series on the Revelation, 
We studied, as we cover in the basic discipleship course, we call it discovery class, when we are open in, these non, in a non-COVID atmosphere, it will come back. This is not forever. God is using this for good. There's a lot of blessings that have come through this COVID thing. I hope you're not missing them. But we studied the various crowns that God will give. And, and we studied in the Revelation that just like hell is not the same for all lost people, heaven is not the same for all saved people. Hell is an awful place for anyone who goes there. And so when the Bible gives general descriptive terms of hell, it just will make, your, make you shiver. But somehow in the perfect justice of God, the New Testament affirms that hell will be worse for some people than others based on the amount of revelation they had and what they did with that revelation and how they responded. Heaven, listen, when it's described in general terms, it's magnificent for anyone who goes there, but it's not the same for everyone who goes there in the perfect justice of God at the judgment of the just, not to see if you get into heaven, but how you will be rewarded when you get into heaven and throughout all of eternity, God will reward his people with crowns. So here's a chart that we studied in some months past, and we saw that there's a number of crowns that are named in the Bible. There's the imperishable crown. For those who deny their sin nature, as 1 Corinthians 9 affirms, there's the evangelistic crown. That's for the Christian who, who seeks to win people to the kingdom. It might be you invite them to the Christmas Eve service. It might be you share a word of testimony. It might be that you try to take someone through the plan of salvation. God is going to reward the faithful Christian who does that. I hope you realize that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he left heaven and the splendor of it and became a man and humbled himself to the point of death, even on a cross, so that people could be saved. And when you're involved in winning people for what the Son of Man said he came to do, to seek and to save that which is lost, he'll reward you in eternity. Some of them say, well, that's not my gift. That's not my, it's your loss. You're disobeying Scripture. There's the evangelistic crown. There's the expecting crown. You know, sometimes Christians get kind of perturbed at these believers who just want to talk about the return of Jesus from heaven. God rewards the believer who thinks that way. The one who loves and looks and longs for the return of Christ, God's going to give him a crown just for that spirit. Why? Because those who long for his return, the scripture says, purify themselves. It has a purifying effect on their behavior. There's a shepherd's crown. That's for the pastor who is faithful to open the scriptures, to study and show himself approved and explain the scriptures to the people of God. God will reward every faithful pastor for that. And then there's the trial's crown, what he calls here the crown of life. For those who joyfully endure through trials, and God will give them the crown of life. Why? Because when they count it joy, they're saying, God, I believe you. I am walking by faith, and God is glorified as men see our good works. And as we studied in Revelation 4, the function of crowns is not to wear them on our, heaven, on our, on our heads in heaven. It's to cast them at the feet of Jesus and to worship him. So some believers will have greater rewards throughout all of eternity because of their faithfulness and love for the Lord. And by the way, when James says, blesses the man, this is not a, a wish. He's not saying, well, I hope you'll be blessed. No, this is a verdict. Blessed is the man who gets his crown of life and if you're new to the Bible, please understand he is not speaking about earning heaven. You cannot work your way to heaven. Heaven is by grace. He is speaking of those who are saved and the rewards that are coming in the future. And again, you can't choose your crosses. None of us can. But we can choose our responses. Let's read all of verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that is to be our motivation, to love him. Now, don't forget the original audience. They are in trouble. We looked at it last week in verse 1. The 12 tribes who are dispersed, scattered like seed. Why? Because of persecution. And first century Jews had double trouble. Number one, Gentiles hated them. Why? Because Satan hates the Jew. The Jew brought us the Savior, and the Jewish people are going to bring the Savior back. 
And so there's been a spirit of anti-Semitism since God founded the nation. There's no people on the face of the earth who have been persecuted like the Jewish people have. But secondly, the double trouble was for the believer who confessed Jesus as Lord who is Jewish. Because not only did he have Gentiles who hated him for his ethnicity, he had his own Jewish brethren who hated him because he believed in Yeshua. And he was persecuted. You know, these folks were scattered. Can you imagine what that's like? I mean, sometimes you have to move. I meet people, and I say, oh, Pastor, just want to come by and say goodbye, and we're, we're getting ready to go to Timbuktu, and they, oh, what's it been like the last few weeks? Oh, I'm just glad it's over. I'm glad the truck's here, and we're all packed up. And you know, we had all these decisions to make, and there's all this stress and the packing and the planning, and, and that's when you pick the date. We studied in Acts 8, that's not the way it happened for these people. Suppose someone came in here this morning and they said, all of you who believe in Jesus as Lord here in Beaufort County, you have one hour to get out of this town or you will be executed or jailed. What would that do for you? That's what James is referring to. That's the people to whom he is greeting. A dispersed, scattered like seed people. And he tells them and he tells us that someday, because of your faithfulness, God is going to give you the crown of life. He'll give it to everyone, not just these dispersed 12 tribes, but to all who love the Lord. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I do know that trials are the great equalizer. Doesn't matter what your status is in life. Rich people, poor people, all kinds of people get all kinds of problems in this life. But I'll tell you, there's another great equalizer, and it's death. For it's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And if you die and spend an eternity without God, it won't be God's fault. It will be your fault because you rejected the God who loved you, who died in your place, who was raised from the dead for you so that you could be forgiven and changed and have a new life. And you can go through this whole life with no meaning to your trials. Or you can go through this life as a saved person headed for heaven where your trials can take on real meaning. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you this morning for the Apostle James who gave us this book. James, Lord Jesus, your half-brother, the one who calls himself a slave of Christ. How grateful we are that he penned these words for us because I desperately need them. And we pray that as we work through this great little ladder, that like James will say, that we're not just those who hear the word, but those who are willing to obey it and apply it. And Father, as I speak and people are listening in different places in the world, Help us to gain perspective, whatever kind of trial that we may be in or we've come out of or what we're ready to get, go into. Help us gain perspective today and help someone listening whose life really has no meaning because they've never met Jesus. Thank you for your promise that whoever will call upon his name will be saved instantly eternally, forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your incarnation that made that all possible. Help someone today, Spirit of God, to reach out in their heart and to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And we make our prayer, Jesus, in your name and for your honor. Amen.